We invite you now to turn to the New Testament and to the Gospel of Mark as we continue our study of Mark's Gospel. We've come to chapter 13, and we'll be looking at verses 5 to 13 of Mark chapter 13. So here as we turn to Mark 13, 5, we are diving into the Olivet Discourse as this discourse is called in Mark 13. And remember that you have in Matthew 24 and 25, you have Matthew's version there, and then for the parallel in Luke, you could turn to Luke 21. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke all record this very important speech or teaching of Christ as he sat there on the Mount of Olives. And last week, we looked at the events that prompted this teaching. So we were looking at verses 1 to 4 of Mark chapter 13. And recall that it is Passion Week, or it's the week of our Lord's suffering and death. And it's Tuesday, and he's been in the temple supposedly all day. So perhaps it's evening now, and he's left the temple for good with his disciples, never again to return to the temple. And as he was leaving, he predicted that that temple would be completely destroyed. And that led to the disciples' question in verse 4, which in turn led to our Lord's discourse here, as he said on the Mount of Olives. And the Mount of Olives would have had the temple very clearly in view. So there's the temple, and they're on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus is addressing his disciples here. And that's what we have in Mark 13, the Olivet Discourse. So let's read verses 5 to 13. Let's back up and read verse 4, just for the context. Tell us when will these things be, and what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? And Jesus, answering them, began to say, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled. For such things must happen, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places, and there will be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of of sorrows. But watch out for yourselves, for they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Let's have another brief word of prayer. God, we feel our need of your help as we come to a passage like this, and we ask that you would give us now that help 
that you would bless these moments as we seek to open up your words, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, in the study of the end times, as it's often called, or of the last things of eschatology, in the study of these things, there's often been an obsession that focuses on speculative or uncertain matters rather than on things that have been clearly revealed about the last days. So, for example, there's often this focus upon the timing of events, in particular of Christ's return and of the end of the world, which Christ himself in this discourse will say that no one but the Father knows. He says that in verse 32 of Mark 13. And you think that that would silence all such speculation, but it doesn't. This discourse and other such passages, we must remember, are not given to fuel such speculation. These words of Jesus were spoken for very practical and pastoral reasons. He's speaking to his disciples in order to forewarn them, to warn them ahead of time. And in doing that, to forearm them, to prepare them regarding various things that they will face in the coming days and weeks and months and even years. Deceivers. False Christs and false prophets, persecution, what's called the great tribulation, and so on. He's also speaking to them to correct certain errors in their thinking. Also to encourage them to endure to the end, to press on in the faith, especially under pressure, especially when they face opposition, And he's urging them, and he's urging all of us to constant watchfulness that we would be ready for that day when he returns. So he's speaking pastorally. He's speaking about very practical matters of our Christian life. So my aim in light of this, as I preach through Mark 13, is that I would have the same focus on practical and pastoral matters. I will seek to shed some light on some of the more difficult and debated texts. But in doing that, I don't want us to lose sight of the heart of Jesus in speaking these things to his disciples and also to us, the church, in all ages. So tonight, as we come to the first major section of the Olivet Discourse, verses 5 to 13, we need to begin by going back to the question of the disciples, which I read in verse 4. That question which was prompted by Jesus' prediction of the destruction of the temple. Let me read that again for you. Verse 4, tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled? So as shocking as the prediction is of the destruction of the temple, these disciples, Peter, James, John, and Andrew, and we can also assume that the other disciples did as well, but they take Jesus at his word. It would have been shocking, but Jesus had proven himself to be trustworthy. So they take Jesus at his word. They know that his word is entirely reliable and credible and trustworthy. So they ask, well, Jesus, when is this going to take place? 
They're thinking there primarily of the destruction of the temple. When will it be destroyed? But there's a second part to their question there, and it is what sign should we look for? What indication should we look for that all of these things are about to be fulfilled? That all of these things are about to be brought to an end? So that's their, their question. When will it happen and what sign should we look for? Now, we know that the disciples have in mind not only the destruction of the temple, but they also have in their minds the coming of Christ, his return, and also the end or the consummation of the age. And we gather this from Jesus' response. So there's the question, and then all that we have here, basically, in chapter 13, from verse 5 to the very end, is Jesus' response to that question. And as we look at the response of Jesus, we can gather that he understood their question not merely to be about the destruction of the temple, but about his coming and about the end of the age. But then Matthew confirms this for us because in Matthew's account, he gives a little bit different version of the question, an extended version of the question. Matthew 24, 3, we read this, that they said, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. Now, you probably know this, but many, many commentaries have been written on Mark 13. But the only infallible commentaries that we have come from these parallel passages in Matthew and in Luke. So as we study this, we ought to compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke and see how each account will shed light on the other. So if something's a little bit dark and uncertain in Mark, we can see if Matthew and Luke shed light on it. And this is an important principle in interpreting scripture because it is the word of God. It's infallible. It's inerrant. So Matthew can't contradict Luke and Luke can't contradict Mark and so on. Now, one last thing before we move on here. We've looked at their question. Keep that in mind not just this evening, but as we work through the discourse, keep the question in mind. But I also want to ask, why did they even ask this question in the way that they asked it, in terms of the coming of Christ? Why was that in their mind? Well, we know that at various times, Jesus had spoken of his future coming. And Mark, just once, it is recorded that he did this, and it was a very crucial moment that certainly was still in their minds. It was right before the transfiguration. And we have this back in chapter 8, and I'll read verses 38, and then chapter 9, verse 1. So this was our Lord's teaching. After he had just for the first time openly predicted his coming suffering, death, and resurrection, he says to them, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him the Son of Man, he's speaking of himself, of him the Son of Man also will be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. When he comes. And he said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that there are some standing here, some of his disciples listening to him, who will not taste death 
till they see the kingdom of God present, literally having come with power. So Jesus had spoken of his future coming. So it's in, in their minds. And when he talks about the temple being destroyed, it seems that they're trying to connect the dots and they're saying that must mean then that he is coming when the temple is destroyed and the end of the age is also coming. Because whatever else they thought about the future coming of Christ in glory, they understood it to coincide, to be at the same time as the end of the age, and also that it must follow immediately after the fulfillment of Jesus' prediction that not one stone shall be left upon another that shall not be thrown down. Those magnificent, gigantic stones of the Herodian temple there in Jerusalem. Jesus begins his response with words of warning. Words of warning. Notice that, verse 5, take heed, and then look again at verse 9, watch out. So that's why I've entitled this sermon, Take Heed. Jesus says, take heed, watch out. Both of them translate the same imperative verb, which we will find two more times in the discourse in verses 23 and 33. So you can look at verse 23. Jesus says, but take heed or watch out. See, I have told you all things beforehand. And then at the end of the discourse, toward the end, verse 33, take heed, watch and pray. For you do not know when the time is, speaking of the time of his second coming. So he begins with words of warning. And clearly this indicates one of Christ's main pastoral concerns. So that is on his heart. He's warning the disciples. So let's come now to see this as we look at verses 5 to 13. And the first thing that we have, verses 5 to 8 is a warning against being misled by deceivers and by distressful world events. So that's the first thing here, a warning against being misled by deceivers and by distressful world events, what we might call today by headlines, troubling headlines. This is verses 5 to 8. So Jesus says, Take heed, watch out for deceivers. Verse 5, and Jesus answering them began to say, take heed that no one deceives you. He was well aware that in this world there will always be deceivers. There will always be deceivers and there will always be a proneness to be led astray by all of us. So there will be deceivers who will seek to lead people away from the truth and people will be susceptible to being led astray. So this isn't an empty warning. He's giving this to his disciples. Take heed, watch out for deceivers. This goes all the way back to the garden, the garden of Eden where the arch-deceiver, Satan, 
that serpent of old. He thoroughly deceived Eve by his craftiness. That's the language of 2 Corinthians 11.3. He thoroughly deceived Eve by his craftiness. That was before the fall. When Adam and Eve were still in that state of innocence, and yet they were led astray by the arch deceiver, Satan. And how much more then, after the fall, are we prone to be misled? So we need to understand this, our frailty in this way. We must beware. So Jesus warns, notice that many deceivers will come. And he even says that they will succeed. They will successfully lead many people astray. Verse 6. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and will deceive many. So these are self-proclaimed messiahs. They will come on the scene. Look at verse 22, because he's going to pick this up again, and we'll look at this, Lord willing, next time I preach on this. He says, for false Christs and false prophets will rise and show signs and wonders to deceive if possible, possible, even the elect. So there will be these many deceivers who will succeed. They will take to themselves the title and the authority that belongs to Jesus alone, even saying, I am he, ego me." Matthew leaves us without any doubt about what Jesus is saying. So see, here's where we can say, well, where's an inspired commentary? Because I've read several things talking about exactly what Jesus is saying, coming in my name, saying, I am, ego me. But Matthew says this very clearly, many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. That's what they will be doing. I'm the Christ. These are the false messiahs he's warning about later in the discourse. And we know if you study history, this is exactly what happened. The ancient Jewish historian Josephus helps us here and tells us about a series of false messiahs who appeared and gathered to themselves followers for a time until it fizzled out. So this word of warning, we need to understand, though it was spoken to these disciples at that time and was perhaps particularly relevant at that time, it is still very valid today. Until the end of the world, there will be false spiritual leaders. And I would put leaders in quote because they are misleaders. That's the point Jesus is making. Leading astray. They will deceive many. They have deceived many. And we could point to many examples throughout history and in our own day. I won't mention any. But take heed. Listen to what Jesus is saying. Take heed that you are not deceived. Don't imagine that you could never be deceived. Any of us here could be deceived if we do not take heed. Take heed, says Jesus. So what we need to do is to be vigilant. We need to be watchful at all times. We need to be prayerful at all times. We need to be much in the word of God. 
The people who are most easily led astray are those who don't know what the word of God says, who can't easily say, thus says the Lord, in response to deception. We could also say we need to keep regularly being with God's people, not isolating ourselves, but gathering as we are doing, having fellowship and worshiping together. And know this too, this is, this is an application to our times in particular, that in our digital age, that we're always just a few clicks or taps away from inviting a whole host of deceivers into our homes. So we need to be watchful, need to be careful. So that's the first thing he says. Beware of deceivers. But then he goes on to say, do not be troubled and misled by distressful world events. Don't be troubled by distressful world events and be misled to think that the end is now. Look at verses seven and eight. Verse seven. But when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be troubled for such things must happen. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be earthquakes in various places. And there will be famines and troubles. And we could add other natural disasters. Even even plagues, we could say. He's just giving some examples. These, he says, are the beginnings of sorrows. Now, at this point, we need to recall the question. Remember that they were asking what will be the sign when all these things will be fulfilled. The destruction of the temple, his coming, the end of the age. What should we look for? And they're likely to see these various distressful events, wars and earthquakes and so on. They're likely to see these as what's often called signs of the time. So you see how Jesus is addressing their question, but he's going to correct some of their error here and their thinking. So he's saying, don't look at these as signs and say the end has come, it's here. But Jesus says, no, these are not signs of the end. Do not be troubled, he says. Do not be alarmed and do not be led astray. And he says very clearly, the end is not yet. That's in verse 7. Now, Jesus, when he says the end is not yet, almost certainly, I believe, is referring to his return and the end of the world, the end of world history, and not just to the end or the completion of the temple's destruction. While that's a possible interpretation, I don't think it does justice to what Jesus is saying here in its whole context. He's saying the end, the end of the age is not yet when you see these, quote, signs of the times. Notice again how deeply pastoral Jesus is being. This concern that he has that they not be troubled, not just that they aren't led astray, but that they not be troubled and how well the good shepherd knows his sheep. He knows what awaits them. He knows their weakness, and he knows that they're going to be tempted to be troubled. He knows his sheep, and so he's speaking ahead of time. Do not be troubled. 
And no doubt they would have remembered these words and been comforted when they were tempted to be troubled. He knows his sheep and how easily we are troubled by the headlines, all of the distressing events that we hear. And we can hear about all of the distressing events that are happening all over the world almost instantly. It's a little bit of an overstatement, but there's some truth to that. And we can be very easily troubled. But Jesus said, wars, rumors of wars, various natural disasters, such things must happen. They must take place. In other words, world history will be punctuated or marked by these kinds of things. We can expect them. These aren't signs of the end, but the beginnings of sorrows. That's the language he uses there in verse 8. These are the beginnings of sorrows. That word there, this, this is really vivid. Jesus gives a very vivid and graphic picture Sorrows refers to the experience of pains associated with childbirth. So these are birth pains or birth pangs, as it's sometimes said, which are preliminary to giving birth. So he's saying all of these things. He doesn't just say they're the birth pains, which are preliminary to birth and come before birth. He says it's the beginning of birth pains. So this isn't the end. It's the beginning of a process. I remember when I first went through this, and some of you guys maybe can, can resonate here with me. When my wife first was starting to have those birth pains, I'm thinking, we're about to have a baby, and I've got to be ready to deliver this child. But it's typically hours and hours, and in this case, it was 30 hours. The beginning of birth pains is not the end. The baby's not coming right away. That's the picture that he's painting. It's very vivid. Paul uses the same imagery to describe the whole creation, which he says has been subjected to futility because of the entrance of sin and in hope, he says. But the whole creation has been subjected to futility. And he says it waits to be set free from its bondage to corruption and then this is Romans 8.22. He says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. It's the same imagery. The whole creation groaning in the pains of childbirth. So what's Jesus saying here at the end of verse 8? The beginning of birth pains are these things. Well, he's saying not only that these things must happen, and not only that the end is not yet, but also that these pains, these sorrows will end in deliverance. That there's a purpose, that there's an end in, in view. So the word of warning here that Jesus gives is infused with a word of hope as he's speaking of these as birth pains. Just as a mother endures the pains of labor, of childbirth, and then she does that in hope, and when the child is born, for joy, she forgets the anguish. So you see that there is a word of hope in using this imagery. So we are encouraged to take heart. 
Yes, take heed, be aware, but take heart. The pains of this present age will end in deliverance for God's people. When Christ comes, all who trust in him, all who are looking for the blessed hope and his glorious appearing, they will not be ashamed. They will not be let down. So these birth pangs, they will lead in our ultimate final deliverance. So you see there, there's, there's a word of hope here. Not just explaining that this is going to be a troubling history between the two comings of Christ. His first coming, his incarnation, and his second coming. So in some here, Jesus says, take heed, don't be deceived by deceivers. And don't be troubled by wars and natural disasters and all of these things. These are not signs of the end, that the end has come, but these are only the necessary prelude to the end. Jesus is encouraging his disciples. His disciples then, who are right there in front of him, and us now who are trusting in him. He's encouraging us not only to be watchful, but he's encouraging us to endure to the end, to press on in faith. The church must be prepared to wait patiently for the return of Christ and to endure many hardships before Christ returns. So we see here, with all of this here, we see that the time between the comings of Christ is an extended time. He's saying the end is not yet. It's just the beginning of birth pangs. All of this is meant to remind us that we need to wait and endure patiently. And it also reminds us that this world is not as it should be because of the fall and the curse, but then also that it's not as it will be, but Christ will make all things new. God is in control of history. He's governing the universe. He's steering all things. None of these earthquakes or wars or anything happen outside of his control, and we need to remember that. He's bringing all of these things, the whole course of world history, all of these distressing events even, to their end when Christ returns to bring about our final salvation and to restore all things, even that groaning creation, that creation that is out of joint now because of sin, will be restored. So that's the first thing that we have. The first major section, or the first subsection, I should say, of this first major section we're dealing with tonight, verses 5 to 8. But let's move on now to verses 9 to 13. Verses 9 to 13, and what we see here is a call to endure to the end especially in the face of persecution for Christ's sake. So Jesus gives a call to endure, to persevere, to the end, especially in light of persecution for his sake. Now this call to endurance consists of warning, again, instruction and encouragement, Warning, instruction, and encouragement. It begins with the imperative, watch out or take heed. Again, that's the same as we saw in verse 5. Watch out, but this time it's not watch out for deceivers, but he says watch out for yourselves. 
Look at that in verse 9. Watch out for yourselves. And he goes on to give the reason for this. And the reason is that they will be persecuted. He says they'll be delivered up. They'll be arrested, handed over into the custody of various authorities. They will be put on trial. They'll even be beaten. And all for Christ's sake. Verse 9. But watch out for yourselves. For they will deliver you up to councils, and you will be beaten in the synagogues. You will be brought before rulers and kings for my sake, for a testimony to them. He's saying, watch out for yourself. Key verb here is delivered up. We find it three times in this passage we're looking at tonight. You'll see it also in verse 11. Look at verse 11, when they arrest you and deliver you up, but then also verse 12, now brother will betray brother to death. That's the same verb. Brother will deliver up brother to death. So this is a key verb that we find. It's exactly what Jesus predicted would happen to himself. When he began to openly tell his disciples, as he had then set his face toward Jerusalem, he told them openly what must happen to him. And it was that he would be delivered up. He would be handed over. He would be arrested. The son of man is being betrayed. That's the same word, delivered up into the hands of men and so on. That's Mark 9.31. You have it again in Mark 10.33. So he says it will happen to his disciples. What he has predicted will happen to him, will happen to those who follow him. Here he's speaking of what we could call official persecution. Official persecution resulting in arrest and trial. So people out of hatred, look down at verse 13. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. So he's saying people in general out of hatred for Christ and for Christ's people will hand them over to the authorities. And that's both Jewish authorities and Roman authorities. I believe that's indicated here by councils and synagogues having a a Jewish flavor to it. And then rulers and kings, they will be brought before. Roman authorities. So both Jewish and Roman authorities, they will be brought before them. They will be on trial. So they will be brought before what are called councils. These were the local Jewish law courts. And then they will be beaten in the synagogues because of their allegiance to Jesus. And then it says that they will be made to stand, not that they will stand, but you see they're being drugged here before kings. They will be made to stand before Gentile rulers and kings. And he adds this word, for or unto a testimony or a witness to them. And that might be in the sense of a testimony against them. That they're going to stand before these kings and rulers, and remember, they've been put into custody for Christ's sake, for proclaiming the gospel, for standing with Christ. So they're going to stand before them and give testimony against them because they have rejected Christ, these rulers and kings. So they're going to bear witness against them. That seems to be what he is saying here. Because of this, 
Jesus says they must watch out. Watch out for yourselves. Not that they might avoid arrest and trial. Not that they might avoid these beatings and possibly even death, which did come upon them. But that they would endure all of it faithfully. That they would press on to the end. That they wouldn't be surprised. That they wouldn't be so easily shaken when these things did come upon them. You think of John 15 where Jesus says to his disciples, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. So the idea here is not so much watch your backs, as we might say. So watch your backs so you don't get jumped and your wallet stolen or something like that. It's not so much that, but watch your hearts. Watch yourselves. Take heed to yourselves that when you do face these pressures, you don't cave and you don't run away from Christ and turn your back on him. Think of the message of Hebrews that we've been seeing again and again. Not to abandon Christ when faced with persecution. Not to fall away. So here this warning is blending into instruction and encouragement. Note again this pastoral, practical concern of our Lord as he's speaking to his disciples. It's no small encouragement. That all of this will be for his sake. And then he'll say again, for his name's sake, people will hate them. That's no small encouragement to know that it's for Christ, their Savior, their Lord, whom they love. It's for his sake that they're undergoing, that they will undergo all of these things. Remember the words of Jesus all the way back in Mark 8, 35. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Another encouragement here is that this opposition will not hinder Christ's mission. It won't hinder the advance of the gospel, but actually it will promote it. This was the case with Paul. When Paul was put in chains, he writes to the Philippians and they're distressed because Paul's in prison. And he says, basically, don't be distressed. This has actually worked out. Contrary to what you might think, me being put in chains has worked out for the advance of the gospel. God has used it, as he so often does, overruling, ruling over evil for good using persecution for the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So again, this is encouragement. The mission will go on. By this opposition, they will have opportunity to stand before rulers and kings. How would that have ever happened? These four fishermen standing before rulers and kings and bearing witness. And then as the next verse implies... Verse 10, their persecution for Christ's sake will be used by God to bring the gospel to all the nations, which has been God's plan all along, not just the Jews. You see that in the Old Testament. It would be for the nations that salvation would come. So look at verse 10. Taking this in the context of what's just been said, that you're going to get, be arrested and you're going to stand before kings and rulers, you're going to give testimony Verse 10, and the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. 
So this is going to be one of the ways that that mission is going to be carried out, that the gospel will go into all the nations. It's through this persecution in part. There is a little detail I want to mention because he says the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. First, before what? And in the context, we might say, well, he must mean what he said earlier, before the end comes. And Matthew confirms that's exactly what he means. Matthew 24, 14, he says, this gospel will be preached and then the end will come. Preach to all the nations and then the end will come. So again, Matthew clarifies the meaning here when he says the gospel must first be preached to all the nations. Now, even with these encouragements, these are encouragements for us too, and they're they're great encouragements, but even with these, this prospect of persecution was no doubt something that could easily shake their faith and terrify them as they're listening to what Jesus is saying, and as they know Jesus is about to be arrested and put to death. So what are they to do? How are they going to rise to the occasion if this should happen? You can see how they could have these sorts of doubts coming to their mind as Jesus is saying to expect this. We have these kinds of doubts as we read in the word of God that we ought to expect this as his people. Well, Jesus gives specific instructions and they're very encouraging instructions in verse 11. But when they arrest you and deliver you up, Do not worry beforehand or premeditate what you will speak. But whatever is given you in that hour, speak that. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. Now, this is something we can't rip out of context. This isn't an encouragement to lazy preachers. Say the Spirit's just going to give you the words when you stand up so you don't have to prepare. That's not the context. These are disciples of Christ who are drug in and they're put before people, put on trial before judges. He's saying, I will give you help by my spirit. And the parallel in Luke is beautiful because in Luke 21, 15, Jesus here says the Holy Spirit will give you the word. It will be the spirit speaking. But Jesus says in Luke 21, 15, I, Jesus, will give you a mouth and wisdom, which all your adversaries will not be able to contradict or resist. And those two things aren't at odds. The Spirit will speak for you, and I, Jesus, will give you the words. There's no contradiction in here. The Spirit is God, and Jesus Christ is God. On the night of his betrayal, Jesus will speak similar words in the so-called upper room as he's with his disciples. And he will promise another helper, capital H, the Holy Spirit, whom he calls the Spirit of Truth. He promises this helper and he says that he will dwell with them and will be in them. He will be their constant helper and their comforter. You read that in John 14. But then in John 15, as he's going on about this, he says that when this helper comes, the Holy Spirit, he says that he will testify of Christ. 
The Spirit will testify. And then right after that, he says that Christ's disciples also will bear witness. John 15, verses 26 and 27. So you see the connection. I will give you this helper. He will bear witness and you will bear witness. Very similar to what Jesus is saying here. Don't worry ahead of time what you're going to speak. Maybe as you're sitting in a jail cell and you know you have to stand before rulers and kings, he's saying, Peter, James, don't premeditate. I will help you and I will give you in that hour when you need it, the word that you ought to speak. The helper will help you. The Holy Spirit will speak. So you see what Jesus is saying here. Now, Jesus' words prove true. We have clear evidence in the New Testament of this. And we could turn to it, but I'll just tell you, you can jot down Acts 4 for one example. Peter and John before the Jewish Supreme Court, the Sanhedrin, given help and strength as they're bearing witness. Now, Jesus goes on to point to to paint a very bleak picture. He's not done yet. A picture of the degree of hatred and opposition that his disciples can expect. Not only what we called official persecution, but what we could call familial persecution. People in your own family. He says, a brother betraying a brother. And he goes on to explain this. So we see this picture. Look at verse 12 again. Now brother will betray brother to death. Brother will hand over brother to death. And a father his child. And children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. You see, it's a very bleak picture of what they can expect. And there's perhaps no greater persecution than to be persecuted by those who ought to be our loved ones, those who love us, our family. Such is the hatred of Christ in the gospel, though, that even these family ties, these close family ties, would be broken apart, and people would deliver up their own children or their own parents or their brothers or their sisters. Such is the hatred of Christ and the gospel in this world among people whose hearts have not been changed and are still hearts of stone. That would be all of us had God not intervened by his grace. But we see this hatred of Christ in the gospel and of his people. Jesus concludes this section with a summary statement that blends sober warning and precious promise. It's verse 13. Sober warning and precious promise. At verse 13, he says, And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but he who endures to the end shall be saved. And by saved, he doesn't mean delivered from persecution or saved from death. This is salvation in the ultimate sense. He's saying you might be put to death. You certainly will be persecuted, he's saying to them. This is salvation in the ultimate sense. Jesus would have us endure suffering and persecution for his sake with the end of our faith in view, that is the salvation of our souls. Salvation. And compare then Revelation 2.10. 
where Jesus is speaking, and this is in the context of a persecuted church. He says, be faithful until death, and I, Jesus, will give you the crown of life. Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. He who endures to the end shall be saved. So we've seen here a call to endure to the end, especially in the face of persecution. And even though it's addressed to Peter, James, John, Andrew, there on the Mount of Olives 2,000 plus years ago, there's much here for our instruction and our encouragement today for every believer until Christ returns. We must expect opposition just as our Lord faced opposition. We must expect it. This is a fairly prominent theme in the New Testament, so I'm not going to turn to all the places that say we should expect opposition as God's people and if we're seeking to live godly in this life. We should expect it. Remember the demanding call of Jesus in chapter 8 when he says, if anybody would come after me, if anybody would follow me and be my disciple, He needs to deny himself and take up his cross and follow me and not worry about saving his life and forget that he has a never dying soul. So following Christ is costly, but in the end, let's remember it's worth the cost. It's worth it. Or as we've been reminded over and over in Hebrews, he, Christ, is worth it, whatever we might face for his name's sake. So remember that. If you're undergoing some degree of persecution, remember that for his name's sake. And tuck it away for when you do face opposition. For Christ's sake, he is worth it. How will you respond to persecution? How will I respond to persecution? We have to be honest, we don't know. When that time comes and we feel the pressure, what kind of persecution? I don't know. How will we respond? We don't know, but we do know this, that Christ will never leave us or forsake us. You're not going to be left alone in your persecution. Whatever you face for Christ's sake, whatever trial you might face in general, but here in particular, you will not be left alone to your own strength and wisdom. And in fact, you will have the best possible helper, the Holy Spirit, who is with you and dwells in you. So as we take in this first major section of the discourse, verses 5 to 13, Jesus would say to us, take heed, take heed, but also take heart, be encouraged, because by God's grace and power, we shall endure to the end and be saved. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for these precious words, the words of our Lord and Savior, and we pray that you would write them on our hearts, and anything that is dark and unclear, that we would understand it, and that we would rightly apply it to ourselves. We thank you for the hope that we have in Christ, even as we live in this world with so many things that are troubling And as we face opposition, we know as we heard this morning that we have a solid hope in Christ. 
Lord, we thank you for that. Help us in all things to look to Christ and to endure to the end. We pray in his name. Amen.